0: You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website.
1: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the House of Literature. My name is Daniel Rökolt, and I work with the artistic program here at the House. Today, we present to you three lectures on the works of Édouard Louis, held by three authors with a literary relation to Édouard and his works. This time, the lecturer is distinguished philosopher, historian, and author, Didier Elibon. In his most recent book, Change Method, Édouard Louis shows just how indebted he is as a writer and thinker to Elibon's works, ever since seeing him lecture early in his life, Louis and Eribon have developed a deep and a mutual understanding, as well as a powerful and lasting friendship. To Norwegian readers, Eribor might be best known for his brilliant novel, Returning to Reyes, published here in 2018. The novel tells of Eribon's own departure from his childhood home and working-class town, and the novel provided the foundation for Louis' debut novel, The End of Eddie. The two novels are closely linked, as are the two close friends and their writing lives. In this lecture, Elibond will share with us some of his insights on Louis' authorship and perhaps show us some of the reasons why he has proven such an inspiration and intellectual partner to Louis. Welcome, Didier Elibond. I would
0: like to begin by citing a striking remark by the Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. I quote, it could be said that everything I have written is the poetry of an exile. I was born exiled. Exile is a vast and relative concept. There is social exile, familial exile, exile in love, interior exile. All poetry is the expression of an exile or a form of alterity. When it corresponds to something that has really been lived, it is then a concentrated, compressed kind of exile. I find exile in every word I seek out in my lexicon. But I'm not complaining. After all, exile has been extremely generous to my writing. It gave it the possibility of traveling between cultures, between people. It is in his book of interviews, uh, uh, Palestina's Metaphor. Darwish declares in that interview that he wishes to be the Trojan poet, that he is on the side of the losers, his story is vanquished. But this does not, this does not imply for him any act of surrender. Quite the contrary. Because he knows... It is a powerful to write his story and to try to impose their version of it on everyone, he wants to amplify the voice of the vanquished, the one who has been the loser of his story. So he calls for a written Palestine, which is to say, written despite and despite in opposition to the effacement by others of his past and of the past of his people. In response to a question about his autobiographical poem, Why Did You Leave the Horse Alone?, Darwish stated that he was trying to fuse together, I quote, fuse together three stories, an autobiography, a biography of the place and its history, and the history of a poetic culture. What he has said about poetry, of course, could equally be said about literature more generally. When it has been written by exiles in the larger meaning of the term, that vast and relative concept of exile as he has defined it. It could could also be said about theory, of course, when it is elaborated by authors who feel themselves to be a kind of extraneous uh, situation to the world in which they, they live. I'm thinking of Michel Foucault, for example, whose first book, Madness and Civilization, Histoire de la Folie, in French, written during a kind of geographic exile. He was living in Sweden at the time, having wanted to flee from France, where he had been suffocating, strives to retrace the history of an exile that was at the same time personal and collective. Mad people and homosexuals the entire book is, after all, founded on the homology of position of these two categories, who constitute what a society has excluded, who are relegated to a space outside some limit or boundary, both cultural and social, and marked as its exterior, having taken as its project the task of performing an archaeology of silence, the silence. People, these people he is talking about uh, were assigned, Foucault speaks in order to reconstruct that exclusion, one of which he himself is the object, as were many others like him, and by so doing, to rise up against the violence of which he was one of the victims. He would say later that all of his books could be read as fragments of an autobiography, and also that in this first book on madness, he was confronting, trying to confront his own problems with his own sexuality. This all seems so palpable to me. What an insurrectionist energy runs through all his books. Like Darwish, he found his exile in every word he sought out, in every sentence that he wrote. Unlike Darwish, every word, every sentence... Counted as a cry of protest or of affirmation, in the case of Foucault, it is also a question of an autobiography, like uh, in the case of, of Darwish, a biography of a place, which is to say the assigning of an entire category of a population to some cultural and social exteriority, and the history of a literary artistic, and philosophical culture that kept the voice of minorities and outlaws or exiles alive. As soon as they begin to write from their personal experience, and how could they do anything else, people of exile, or dominated people in one register or another, find their exile in every word they seek out, the manner in which exile has shaped their sensibility or their gaze, is at the origin point of their literary or theoretical endeavour. What they write does not arise solely from autobiography or auto-analysis, but from a kind of collective and impersonal autobiography, one that refers us to geography, to history, and, of course, to politics. Class traitors or renegades... In French, the word is "transfuge de classe," and it's it's it very difficult to translate it into English because "transfuge" has not the meaning of a, of a renegade. It's uh, "transfuge" means that you flew, you escape from uh, your background, but it's not. Um, okay, <laughs> you see what I mean. It's, but the translation, the the. Um, um, the, trans- the, the current translation is uh, is uh, class traitors or renegades. So, I, I, like all those so class traitors or renegades, like all of those who find or feel themselves ill at ease in falsely position, uh, falsely positioned within the social and cultural spaces where they reside, this displaced person, socially, geographically, culturally, and so on, are surely well positioned to shed light on the mechanism that govern the social world, on the social verdicts that put people in their place, on the wheels of power that create hierarchies on that class some, some among us as inferior. To have traversed different strata of the social world, to have passed from one place to another, from one milieu to another, allows you to know something of the world you have left behind, of the world in which you have arrived, and of the world you have crossed in between those other two. A certain kind of lucidity is forced on the renegade, on the transfuge de classe, even if certain stages of their journey might provoke in them a kind of bad faith, lies about themselves, might provoke a form of self-denial, Everything I have said so far is, of course, applicable to Edouard Louis. Edouard Glissant, another Edouard, another famous Edouard, uh, the Caribbean uh, poet and writer, in his book Caribbean Discourse, launched what he called his quarrel with history. In order, he wrote, to make audible the voice of those left aside by the grand narrative of universal history, with a capital U, a capital H. there was left aside by the grand narrative of, U, of universal history. So, I might say, did Edouard Louis, like Annie Ernaud, open a quarrel, a different one, of course, but quite analogous, with a narrative that presented itself as general and universal? Like Annie Ernaud, Edouard Louis was well-placed to know that this narrative was false, and that its very falsity was much more than a simple mask used to cover over social violence. In reality, that falsity was and it is a constitutive element of the social violence in question, and constitutive also of its reproduction. Edouard Louis's first book, *The End of Edy*, *En finir avec Edy Bellegue*, showed that what his childhood has been, the milieu in which he spent his childhood, as well as his will to escape it, to flee towards some other place, a place about whose location he had little idea, a place that he would little by little discover was never quite there where he had imagined it to be. I know perfectly well that he has often declared that it was not really a question of flight, and more one of being sidelined. From early in his childhood, he understood, in several interviews, he said it was not a fly, it was uh, a was, uh, I was I was sidelined. From early in his childhood, he understood that there, were, there was no place for him in the world he lived in. He was rejected because he did not correspond with the norms that were in place, The norm of masculinity, the little faggot, the little queer, or to put it in more elegant terms, the cursed child of which Jean Genet speaks, is someone who dreams of escaping. And when he has escaped in his dreams, he then actually gets away and runs as far as possible. The image of Eddie who heads off running through the fields on the last uh, page of the end of Eddie, is the metaphorical evocation or metonymic of this escape. Indeed, he had to get away, and so he left. But, in spite of his declaration, I call this a flight. He wanted to put some distance between himself and this child, this adolescent, who was called Eddie Bell Girl. Flight and transformation. After many steps, then he would recount in Change Method. It has just been published in, uh, in, uh, in Norway a few, a few days ago. So, Change Method in English would, could be changing how to do it or changing a method. Uh, the person who had been Eddie became Edouard Lewis and he undertook to paint the portrait or that Eddie Bell girl that he had been, that he no longer wanted to be. It is not particularly easy to no longer be who you were, because in a certain sense, you still are that for a certain time, even for a very long time after. He needed to make a break, not only with himself, to cut himself off from his past, but also to break with his family and his milieu. It was possible to see in the picture that he painted of his milieu, despite the absolute truth of the portrait, and I can testify that uh, this is an absolute truth, despite the absolute truth of the portrait, the effect of a desire, was it conscious? Was it unconscious? Or was it maybe conscious? For vengeance, he resented his family for being what they were, for having behaved towards him as they did, for having said the, to him the words they said, hurtful and insulting words. In my book, Insult on the Making of the Gay Self, the French title is Reflection sur la Question Gay, I wrote that the social word is insulting. It is a word of insult. The beauty of Edouard's first book is doubtless impossible to dissociate from the anger that one hears growling in the background but this end of Eddie was also end of Eddie was also a beginning it has always seemed obvious to me that after that frantic all-encompassing flight a day would come for a moment of return a reconciliation with himself by Way of a reconciliation with his family. We really need a different word than reconciliation, but I'm not quite sure what word to use. A reconciliation is a word I used in in my book Returning to Rance, and I'm all I'm all too aware that it is inadequate. But there is no other word that, that would serve better. Then he writes a book about after that after the, the the first book he writes a book about his father and then one about his mother his sociological gaze had sharpened itself this is something i want to emphasize sociological edward's books are full of uh, sociological theory and it's it's, it's uh, amazing how he is able to put theory in a literary book, and uh, this is one of uh, is the mastering of a, a literary technique. He is not only someone who, who deals with uh, working class, subalterns, uh, but he is also, also someone who, rein, who reinvents the, the, the writing, the, the, the way of, of doing literature. So this is something I want to emphasize sociological. For there is no ground given to psychology and certainly not to psychoanalysis in these two books. He writes about his father, about his mother, and he is currently in the process of writing his next book about his brother, but he sets aside all the clichés of the the Oedipal Triangle, the Oedipus Complex, Castration, and so on. In so doing, he rejects, without it even being mentioned, All the psychologism and psychoanalyticism that often contributes to keeping critical thought shut up within established frameworks with their dominant definition and their perception that are prescribed by cultural and ideological doxa. Of course, if you consider that what he tried to describe is the interior of a family, uh, you made the point, of course. Uh, it's sociology, it's politics, it's not uh, uh, the relationship to the mother or to the father. What he wishes to reveal is the extent to which the fact of belonging to a class, and you know which class it is about, determines, yes, determines, what we are down to the tiniest detail of our lives. Who killed my father and... A Woman's Battles and Transformations, are two extremely personal books. He offers up two short biographies of the father and the mother of the author, while at the same time, the author also inserts numerous autobiographical elements. It is a group portrait, a collective portrait. But let there be no mistake. Above and beyond the description of intrafamilial relations, this group portrait, father, mother, son, and brothers and sisters, is also the portrait of a class. And indeed, this is the project of the book, the approach the the author has specifically laid claim to, the portrait of a social class. We can discuss the, the idea of class. If you, if you label this class as working class, uh, you have to add this is not the working class we, we have in mind when we think of the, the working class movement. The, uh, it, it would be even more the under-working class, people who don't work. It's a, a working class who cannot work any, any longer because there are no work uh, uh, available in the, in the area. So this is a portrait of a social class to describe the world of the dominated, those left behind, just as Annie Ernaud has done, who claimed of her book about her father, and it is also true of her book about her mother, that in order to give an account of lives ruled by necessity, the word down there, the world down there, it seemed impossible to her, unbearable even, to make use of the novelistic, of literature in the legitimate sense of the, of the world. And that she therefore chose to write underneath literature, en dessous de la littérature. So just like Annie Ernaud, Edouard Louis asserts that he wants to diverge from literature. He even goes so far as to declare in an interview that he wants to write against literature. Annie Ernaud's project and Edouard Louis' project are auto socio-biographical ones. As in Annie Ernaud's work, it would also be worth discussing a few other authors, of course, but that would make it uh, in, um, this in, into too long for a lecture in the context of the symposium where we, we find ourselves today. The question of social class, of class habitus, of modes of life in the popular classes of the habitus of workers and today's precariat, all of these dimensions brings us into contact with the political realm, with a mix of anger and resignation in that popular classes we are um, talking speaking about, and notably with the, the act in this milieu of voting for the far right, which seems to have become not only in France, in, uh, in Italy... Uh, but also, um, I'm in Sweden, <laughs> not far away from here, uh, with the act of voting for the far right, which seems to have become the sole means still available to those who are culturally and economically dispossessed. But in Edouard Louis' work, as in Anier Knows too, this return to the world that he had left behind also happens by way of a systematic exploration of questions of gender, central to their books. Specific questions, of course, in, in these two um, uh, examples, but ones that are also intrinsically implicated in the social norms of gender, gendered relations, the inflexibility of the masculine domination that resides at the centre of the popular classes, with only some occasional glimmers of women's emancipation combat et métamorphose d'une femme. I said at the outset of my remarks that the point of view of the class renegade was a privileged one. Knowing several several words, words to have moved from one to another allows you to see what differentiates them, what opposes them, the division of the self in the, the division in the self. Produced by this situation of displacement, the flight to another world, the fact of having been displaced, and the discordances that accompany it become powerful features of both autoanalysis and socioanalysis. It then becomes incumbent on these renegades to share with others what they have understood about themselves and about others. But the renegade's point of view is also the point of view of privileged people. In order to write about the world from which you come, you have to have left it behind. The social trajectory of these renegades is, after all, more often than not linked to an educational tra- trajectory. One sees this very clearly in authors such as Asya Jebbar, John Edgar Weidman, Pierre Bergogneau and, once again, Annie Ernaud and Edouard-Louis, among others, of course. The social distance attained strongly... The social distance attained is strongly correlated to the acquisition of a good deal of cultural capital, which is lacking in those one has left behind. And probably it's one of the reasons you have left them behind to acquire this uh, cultural capital. Therefore, to speak of those left behind in order to give them visibility, to provide them a place in the social world. As Annie Ernaud put it, I wanted to avenge my race, uh, as she said in an interview, uh, she was speaking of the dominated, the subaltern, those forever classed as inferior and doomed to silence. I wanted to avenge my race my race, she said. But is also to speak about them to speak in their stead, Pierre Bourdieu posed this important question in taking up the political problem of the spokesperson, of the delegation, and the representation of those who scarcely have access to the public speech, the public sphere, unless it is by the means of the delegation to others of the power to speak for them. But Bourdieu insisted To speak for the working class, it was the example he was exploring, to speak for the working class means two things that are inextricably linked together. To speak in favor of, but also to speak in the place of. This is an extremely important, but also mind-boggling question. What does it mean, what does it imply to speak for, in favor, but also in the place of? individuals and collectivities who would not speak at all if someone did not speak for them, that is to say in their place. One runs up against this problem in each and every effort to speak of those who would not speak if you did not speak of them. It goes without saying that if Édouard Louise did not speak of his father or of his mother, they would not speak at all. They will not write books. This very same kind of question runs from one end to the other of my book, Returning to Reims. It is also the question that will be at the center of my next book on elderly people, those who have lost their physical autonomy and who obviously find themselves incapable of speaking in a collective and public way in the public sphere. I would like to let their voice be heard said Simone de Beauvoir in the introduction of her wonderful book on old age. And so would I, following in Beauvoir's footsteps, for given that my mother could not protest publicly about the situation in which she found herself, and if those elderly people were obliged to keep to their beds their rooms, their nursing rooms, are unable to constitute something like a politicized, organized, mobilized we, we the elderly, then someone, intellectuals like Beauvoir or myself, must constitute through their writing that we, even without belonging to it. It is a we constituted in the second degree by those who can say them, about those who can not say we. So yes, I will speak in the place of these elderly people, in the place of my mother, but these same elderly people would not speak at all if I did not speak for them, if I do not speak for them. It remains nonetheless important to highlight that by describing the violence of the social world in the manner in which you see it, in the manner in which you analyze it, you also exercise a certain kind of violence over those others who find themselves implicated in what you write without having asked for this to happen. People who, it goes without saying, for otherwise there would, not, there would be nothing to explore, nothing to render explicit, these people who do not see the world in the manner in which you present it nor does their lived experience of the world match the manner in which you describe it. Those whom you have left behind will obviously not welcome you back with open arms when, having left, you decide to return. The Maro- Moroccan uh, writer, Dres Shraibi dwelt on this with great eloquence in a number of novels. The person who returns will lay themselves open to the resentment of those they re- a re-encounter, and to consider, quite correctly, most of the time, that the person who left did so in order no longer to resemble them. To come back among those you those ardently wanted no longer to resemble can never be a simple matter. To write about this only magnifies the discomfort. When my book, Returning to Reims, appeared, my mother felt attacked, and made no attempt to hide the fact. She protested loudly, she ranted and raved, but what did she expect? I I don't know. In any case, she knew that I was writing a book and she she was always asking me, when will it be published? And and, uh, when she read it, what did she expect? I don't know in any case, not what she read. Yes, but that's not what I expected, she replied, when I pointed out to her that a great portion of what was in the book came from her. A discussion, and my discussion with her. She started by objecting, everything is your book is false. I countered, no ma'am, it's all true. I said, that did not satisfy her. Maybe so, but there was no reason for you to tell it all. Richard Dawkins, a British sociologist, describes identical reactions after he published the first volume of his autobiography. To his aunts, who had raised him, it was unseemly and scandalous for him to have described publicly things that came from their private life, from their intimate family circle. It should have been anticable that anyone could cry them from their rooftops. The image that I mirrored back to my mother seemed to her to deform things, but especially it seemed to devalorize them. I came to understand, by way of the discussion that ensued, that what had hurt her the most was that I spoke of the nearly abject poverty in which we lived when I was very young. She reacted as if I had wanted to make her and my father responsible for the destitution in which we lived. It was important for her to deny the portrait that I had painted. Your father and I, we worked hard, the both of us, to feed you. There was food on the table every day. I remembered the poverty, but she recalled for me the daily struggles to manage in spite of everything. It's true, she told me, we were not rich, but she repeated to me at least 50 times in the course of several days. It's not like we were beggars. Once the book was published, the other side of the reception, I began to receive messages that expressed the opposite reaction to hers. Dozens or hundreds of letters, emails, and also, and it's an ongoing process up to, to, to now, and also oral testimonies during different public events following the book's publication. The gist of these messages was, you were writing about me, you were telling the story of my life. My mother, my brothers, my family could not recognize themselves in my book or did not want, want wish to recognize themselves. Yet readers did discover themselves in those pages to the point that they wrote me incredibly in, uh, huge number, incredibly long letters to which I soon have to give up responding respo- uh, personally. It became impossible. There were so many of them. But the point is, as André Gide has provided, um, uh, André Gide has provided a mag- magnificent description of this constitution of collectivities, of elective communities, of publics, or rather counter-publics, through the intervention of the book in which such readers, however distant they may be from each other, can nonetheless recognize themselves. And returning to Reims, it seems to me now became and continues to be a vector for the formation of one of these collectivities, one of these subterranean counterpublics that comes into public view during reading, book signing, public discussion, lectures, conferences, and so on. For Returning to Reims is not a book about me, but a book about the whole set of social and historical structures that needed to be exhumed or reconstituted in order to understand both who this I was who was writing and who this me was about whom he was writing from whence did the one and the other come and what linked them together the same is true of the other characters of the others the characters in the book are individual incarnations of positions occupied in the social world they are not individual characters they are but uh, they embody the whole social world at a place where history and geography meet. They are social characters, social bodies, and therefore they are political bodies. You will all have understood that in speaking of my book, of the reaction of my mother, of the letters that I received from readers and so on, that I have been speaking all along about Édouard Louis, since he was one of those people who came up to me at the end of a lecture I gave to tell me exactly that. Your book tells my story. That story he later wrote for himself. And now when he appears at a book event anywhere in the world, we just come up to him to say, your books tell my story. And this is to be continued, of course. The writer is always political, right? Gilles Dezeleuze and Félix Guattari, in their book on Franz Kafka, because he or she changes perceptions and anticipates future communities and people still to come. They are, as I say, watches that gain time. They announce and contribute to creating the future. We could therefore say that to explore memory is to step into the future. Thank you.